Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. It was this little Thai monk, a Buddhist monk, and he was teaching us some form of mindfulness. <laughs> and about four weeks in, he went around the room and spoke to everyone, and virtually every single person he talked to, he would ask them a certain question. I can't remember what any of these questions were, but they would either burst into tears or start laughing in that big release sort of way. And I thought, oh, this is great. Everyone gets this. And he's coming to me. And so I guess there were probably 20, 25 of us in the class. And there was just me and two other people left. And and he came to me and he stands in front of me with his, he's in his robe and he's got his hands lit in front of him. He says, he looked at me and he sort of cocked his head and said, why are you here? I said, well, to learn how to meditate. And he sort of smiled and shook his head and said, why are you here? And then... After I said to meditate, and then he got really stern. He says, why are you here? And you tell me, man. <laughs> I don't know. And then he just dropped his head and shook his head in a disappointed fashion and moved on. And I was the one who didn't get to have a release. Hey there, it's Light Watkins. Welcome back to the podcast. By the way, did you know that you can watch these episodes on my YouTube channel? I know for me, sometimes it's nice to put a face to a voice or to a story. So just keep that in mind in case you're the same. I post every podcast episode on my YouTube channel, which you can find very easily by just going to YouTube, search Light Watkins Podcast. And I also post the raw, unedited version of every podcast episode in my Happiness Insiders online community, which is at thehappinessinsiders.com. So if you're the type that likes to hear all of the mistakes and the false starts and the chit chat in the beginning and the end of every episode, then you can listen to all of that by joining my online community at thehappinessinsiders.com. And not only will you have access to the unedited versions of the podcast, but you also will get access to my 108-day meditation challenge. And there's also a 108-day movement challenge that you can take in that community. Okay, so this week, we've got another very special guest on the show. He happens to be one of my meditation teacher colleagues, and he is also an accomplished actor. And many of you know that since 2016, I've been writing and sending out a daily dose of inspiration email, which is called Light's Daily Dose of Inspiration. I literally have not missed a day since I started on June 6th of that year. So to date, we're talking about 2,000 something emails going out every morning. Well, what you probably didn't know is that I was very much inspired to start that initiative because from 2011 until that moment in 2016 and beyond, I had been receiving a daily email from my meditation teaching colleague, 
Jeff Kober. And so Jeff Kober is on the show today, and I've always been impressed with Jeff's commitment to sending out that email every day like clockwork on top of all of the other wonderful things that he's got going on. And eventually I thought to myself, you know what? I want to start doing the same thing. And so I dragged my feet for a couple of years, but then eventually I started. And now here we are today with actor, photographer, and Vedic meditation teacher, Mr. Jeff Kober, to dive into his backstory and find out how he discovered his mission of spreading his Vedic meditation thought for the day via email and how it led to the publication of his recent book, which is called Embracing Bliss, 108 Daily Meditations. You may have also seen Jeff on the show Sons of Anarchy and The Walking Dead, and he's been featured on dozens of other TV shows and and in movie roles. He's got a great story about how he found his way from a farm outside of Billings, Montana to Hollywood, how he hit rock bottom with drugs and alcohol, and how he later on got sober, and why he initially avoided the style of meditation that he now practices and teaches, which is Vedic meditation, which is what I also teach. And so without further ado, I'm very, very excited to introduce you to my friend, my colleague, one of my inspirations, Mr. Jeff Kober. Jeff Kober, it is an honor. It's a pleasure to have you on my podcast. Thank you so much for making the time. Thanks for having me. It's always good to see you. Absolutely. One disclaimer that we should make is that we know each other fairly well. <laughs> we've been we've been in the same. In fact, I was reading through some of your articles and stuff that have been written about you. And I didn't realize you learned Vedic meditation when you were 48. Is that accurate? I did. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. I'm 48 right now. And I, when I think about you, <laughs> when I first met you, I felt like you were like, you looked older than, than I look right now. <laughs> like I always saw you as like this really mature, this worldly, this guy's been around. And I don't see myself that way, ironically, you know, but I think that's kind of how it is. Everything from the inside looks <laughs> different yeah. than from the outside. Yeah. yeah. And how old would our teacher have been around that time? Well, there's two different stories uh, about that, but I think he was born in 48. So that would make, have made him 50. You'd be 73. Yeah. How old would he have been? 73 now. He would have been 53 at that time. That was 20 okay. years ago. Gosh, that's crazy. So he would have been five years older than I am right now. Yeah. Wow. It's so crazy, the subjectivity of time. Hmm. And what we choose to make of it is mm-hmm. kind of fascinating, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I read for a show and I had to watch a, an episode of it to see what the tone was it's called Reservation Dogs. Taiki Waititi is one of the executive producers of it. And it's about Native Americans in Oklahoma. And it's it's so funny. But last night, uh, we watched an episode, and they were talking about string theory and the paradox that time should move in all directions instead of just forward. It's a comedy. That story goes nowhere. That's it. They were, just, they were talking about time. <laughs> well, no, speaking of reservations and time, 
let's take it back to Billings, Montana, because you grew up, that's near a reservation, right? It's kind of like sandwiched in between a reservation and Yellowstone National Park. Montana has more reservation land than any other state. Yeah. Mm. So what was that like growing up? There were not a lot of natives in, in, there were none in my town, but we played, there were certain teams that we played. It was class C sports. We played eight man football and, and basketball. And we were against teams that were completely Indian off the reservation or half Indian. And I had one good friend from Edgar. He was a crow, Tommy Roundface. He ended up being given the choice of jail or the service. So he went into the Navy back then. What I noticed about it back then was that people need a group to look down on. And people look down on natives where I grew up. You know, they were Mm -hmm. able to demonize them because of what it looked like from the outside. Was that happening in your own household or was your house different? My house was not openly racist, but push comes to shove. I'm I'm sure that words to that effect would have been spoken, I imagine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you don't know the Indians. You know, just some group that's other. And it's like what's going on right now, you know, in Eastern Europe is I think people feel a sense of relief that they can hate someone outside the country. You know, Putin, it's all Putin's fault. No, it's not. It's mm-hmm. capitalism's fault. It's the fault of the ego. It's the fault of being a human. And, you know, Putin is the face of that right now. What was the vibe like growing up in Billings, in your house, in your family and, and stuff? Who was around? What were they talking about? What were some of the ideologies that were, well, were was, being indoctrinated? I was, I was raised in a, a German Lutheran home. Mm-hmm. My father and two of his brothers worked the family farm. His parents both emigrated from Germany or German settlements in Russia toward the turn of the century, the turn of the you know nineteenth to twentieth century. And it was really hard work. And Lutheranism was basically you're not meant to enjoy your life. You're meant to suffer. And mm-hmm. if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior, and don't screw it up right at the end, then you'll go to heaven. And, you know, children should be seen and not heard. You know, The Drama of the Gifted Child was a book that was, came into favor in the late, I guess it was the late 70s. And in that book, they quoted a Lutheran German child rearing manual from the 18th century that said, the will of the child must be broken by the time they're three so that they can be built up properly from there. You know, and mm. it was a lot of that. You were let run wild. I just ran wherever I wanted in the farm, but no one was reflected by their parents the way that, you know, a child needs to be reflected by their parents. I was trying to get, I remember being six years old and sitting down next to this stream and looking back up the hill at the house and thinking, I'm six. I can't leave here till I'm 18. That's three times longer than I've been here already. Oh my God. I, I don't know how I'm going to make it. <laughs> You had that realization when you were just six years when old. When I was six years old, yeah. <laughs> I started early. Were you basically like a farmhand, like as you were growing up? Were you working a lot and all that hard work? Yes and no. You know, we worked 10-hour days, 12-hour days. I s- stacked a lot of hay for a dollar an hour. And when I wasn't working for my family farm, I was working on someone else's farm. And 
it was backbreaking work. It was horrifying, man. Farmers work way too hard for what the payoff is. They work hard, and then a lot of them, or at least some of them, when the work is over, when harvest happens, then it's time to drink. My father would go away for weekends. He would go bowling on a Thursday night and sometimes come home (laughs) on Friday and sometimes on Saturday and sometimes on Monday. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. What was your aspiration as you were like in your teenage years? I don't know that I had one light. You know, I you definitely was, didn't want to do that, right? I didn't want to do that. And the other options were in the next town over, you know, we were in a really small town. You know, like mm-hmm. I, I had 70 people in my high school. But the other options were the railroad or the oil refinery. And, you know, I thought about being a pilot. I wanted to be a pilot. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a Superman or Jesus. Those were my choices because one was invulnerable and the other one didn't care uh, if he was hurt or not. And, you know, I needed something magic. I needed something bigger than what I had access to, to knowing one could do. And then when I was 15, I had this accident and that derailed everything, everything that was there, anything that was there, you know, it was just, I would no longer deserve to have a life. I no longer deserved happiness. I, I no longer deserved to want anything. What was the accident? A little boy ran out in front of my car on Halloween night. I was a football player and it was the night before our championship game and he was killed. He was a friend of mine and I wasn't drinking. I wasn't breaking the law, but I had killed someone. And then because of the place where we lived, no one talked to me. The Germans are like, they don't talk. No one Mm -hmm. ever talked to me about the accident. I never spoke to a guidance counselor as to what I wanted to do with my life. I never spoke to anyone about anything. You keep everything inside and you're supposed to know how to do things without being shown how to do them and you're berated for not knowing how to do them. And 
And then that happened and, you know, I wanted to die. I couldn't die. I tried a few times and I wasn't able to, to go through with it. You know, then I went down my own path of medicating myself as much as possible, smoking a lot of cigarettes, drinking when I could, you know, smoking pot, just being kind of a bum for several years there. Is that where you sort of broke with Lutheranism and you had to develop your own sort of spiritual understanding of the world and how things work and if things are fated to be and destiny and randomness and all of that? Well, that was a long time coming at that point, you know, because when I was a little kid, I used to sit in the Lutheran church and there's this somewhat well-known painting by a German of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. And in the background, the Roman soldiers are cutting off I think it's Peter's ear, somebody's, they cut off someone's ear. And, and I kept, I would stare at that painting and want the, to see the hair move, want to see some evidence of life, because I wanted to believe in the reality of, of the divine. And, and of course, I never saw anything like that. But when that accident happened, then it was like I was over here and God was over there. And it was like I had made an agreement with God that if you stay over there, I'll stay over here and torture myself so you don't have to worry about it. And I was no longer fit to go to God. I was no longer able to even try to have a connection with God. I had done something that took me off the board. So then I lived with an idea of God, but without God being in my life and without the possibility of God being in my life. And it was many years later that I began to study spirituality began to look for some kind of an answer. But that was 10, 12, maybe 15 years later, you know, after a long period of time just being lost and wandering in the wilderness, as they say. Billings is a small town, right? Something like that is very traumatic. I imagine you would have a bit of a scarlet letter type of feeling as a young person walking around that town, is that one of the reasons why you went so far away to Los Angeles? Yeah, because I was that guy. I was that kid. That was that, you know, there people whispering my story. Yeah. They changed Halloween in my hometown. They banned trick-or-treating. So they would, they mm. would from that point forward, they had, because I was from a small town outside of Billings and they, you know, they would have parties for the kids in the civic center rather than have them go out trick-or-treating. So you moved to LA in your 20s. Was the plan to be an mm -hmm. actor or you just wanted to get out of <laughs> Billington? I, so I hitchhiked around. I was in a carnival. I got arrested for possession of marijuana. And I finally realized that I needed to do something. So I decided to go back to school. I had tried school when I got out of high school and it didn't work for me. But then I wanted to go back and I went back to college just to try to do something with my life. And I met a woman and she moved to LA and I followed her here. I had no plan. I didn't know how to make a plan. I didn't know how to find my way. I enjoyed playing music. I was a trombonist. So I practiced trombone a lot and read a lot and wrote some and then followed this woman. She was going to be an actress. That didn't work out for her, but uh, she left and I stayed. And then 
I was in a rock band for a short period of time called Walking Wounded. I guess the high point of our band was opening for Tim Harden. And then he was too drunk to hold his guitar, so we had to go back out and, and back him during his set. And when he dropped his guitar for the third time, <laughs> get, the, get the band back up here. And I ended up working in an office as a temporary paralegal. And I remembered that life made sense when I was in a class and had an assignment. And I just mentioned to the, all these people I was working with that I was looking for a class. And this woman said, I go to this acting class. I think you'd like it. And I went to the acting class. And for the first time ever, I was able to see what to do with all the feelings I had inside. It was like, not only was it okay to have feelings in this place, it was celebrated. And I was able to begin to have flow of life through me again, which had been shut down for a very long time. What had you learned in your younger years growing up in small town USA that you were able to then apply to Los Angeles acting community that you found that helped you? Whether it was your resolve or, you know, you said it was backbreaking work, but I'm sure a lot of times in those circles in LA, people see going to the post office's backbreaking work. And you're like, you, you guys have no idea what backbreaking work actually is. Did it affect your work ethic at all in any way? Yeah, I think I had a, a really strong work ethic and I was willing to put myself through the ringer to do what I needed to do to fulfill a certain role. And there was something about, and I don't know if this is inherent, if you come in with this, or if it's something that you learn, but there was a sense of, I couldn't stand BS from myself. I couldn't mm -hmm. stand to be anything other than truthful on stage. And, you know, that's like a superpower when it comes to acting. If you have the willingness and ability to be seen and to just let the truth of yourself flow. That's what acting is. And what I learned from my family system was I was the go-between, I was the mediator. And I had so many conversations with friends and with family of like, no, 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 what she really meant to say was, no, you don't, you're, you're, you're mistaken. You know, so uh, the ability to read people, you know, when you don't have a strong grounding in yourself and you're at the mercy of those people you learn how to read them really well and the nuance of what mood is going is going to come into the room this time who are they going to be this time you know is it okay for me to have feelings or not is it okay for me to have an opinion or not well that's that, the basis that was, of the meisner technique which you study right this idea of being your yeah. most authentic self and reading the room over whatever that's written on the page. Reading the other person and right. allowing the other person's reality to draw out of you the most powerful expression of your felt need. Like in every situation, we have an emotional need. I need you to love me. I need you to respect me. I need you to give me money. And that's going to determine the way I speak to you. That's going to determine the way I am with you. And if I'm letting my performance be based on your reality rather than my own reality, then I'm free and open and alive. If I'm basing it on my reality, then I, I come up with ideas of how it should be. And it's not alive. It's just clunky. It's like, here's this moment and here's this moment. 
And that has served me well, just in terms of building myself into a human that's capable of being with other humans, in that I think we all walk into a situation, and I, I look at things a lot in terms of we are spirit having a human experience, and I'm always going to have a human animal need in a situation. I'm going to walk into a situation of strangers, and my animal nature is going to want to defend or protect or, or dominate one of those animal things. And those needs of the animal nature rarely are useful in social situations. So then I get to recognize that that's going to happen to me and then build in a stronger need, build in a more spiritually viable need, a more advanced need, which is in our work and in the work of spirit is almost always, if not always, to uplift to bring joy or light to the equation, to be of service to the others in, the, in that equation. When you were in LA and you were in your earlier years, you know, working as the trombone player and the taxi driver and the handyman and dabbling in acting and getting better at that and all of that, did you have some sort of spiritual practices or any kind of foundation, any understanding that you pulled away from the Christianity? I tried some introduced to a woman who who did the I Ching, and I went to her, and then she introduced me to some people, the Ananda Marga organization. They were some orange robes who had, you know, they ran orphanages around the world, and she convinced one of, one of the monks to teach me a meditation practice. And I always thought, you know, this is really going to help me as soon as I stop getting high. Um, as, soon as, I, as soon as I put away the marijuana and the alcohol and the amphetamines, this is really, I'm going to really have an experience here. You know, and I read a lot. I studied the Tao, the Tao Te Ching. I studied Science of Mind. That was a big one. You know, Ernest Holmes and learning Holmes, how to yeah. do, uh, scientific prayer and all that. Yeah, so I was I was looking all the time, and I would go into used bookstores and just look for the truth, look for something that resonated with me. And there used to be this store in West Hollywood, the Bodhi Tree Bookstore, and it was just, I would go in there and just wander around until a title would jump out at me. And one of the first books I read that was really powerful for me was Das Energy by Paul Williams. It was published in the 70s, and it was this little book of short aphorisms that basically offered permission to have a good life and logically presented a case for the connectedness of humans to divinity. And that something about that, it was so simple and so not what I was used to that it really resonated for me. I did some Feldenkrais work. Moshe Feldenkrais was an Israeli who learned a new way of being in his body based somewhat on the Alexander technique. And he learned to train his body to overcome a terrible injury the, that he had had. And people did this Feldenkrais work and it. I was so locked up. All the stresses in my system, all the trauma in my system had just locked me up. I was frozen. And the Feldenkrais work and Alexander Lowen's work, he was another guy who talked about the physical approach to releasing trauma. Those mm -hmm. things started to free me up a little bit. Those mm -hmm. were the beginnings. 
So let's juxtapose that with your acting career. You get China Beach, which is your first major role, right? Actually, I had the first major role I had was a movie called Out of Bounds with Anthony Michael Hall. You know, I was the main bad guy. I was the third lead in that. And then China Beach happened a couple of years later. As that was all happening, how did you feel, you know, because there's this idea that as soon as I achieve the goal of doing what I'm here to do, that I'm going to be happy. <laughs> what was your experience when with that? I, when I got this job in the movie, here's what actually happened. I, it was such a junkyard inside here that I gave my final audition to the writer and director and producer. Uh, Richard Tuggo was the director. But I did the audition and then and they were chatting. And I said, so do I have the job or not? And I literally closed my eyes and went inside my head to watch the change happen. You know, if they were going to say yes, I was going to see, you know, like, Ta-da, some kind of light go on inside, like you've made it, you're you're worth something. And the opposite happened. Nothing changed. Nothing changed inside at all. And the hope of something being able to change what was inside me was now gone because I'd gotten mm. the thing that was supposed to fix it. Mm -hmm. And I could no longer escape the drugs and alcohol stopped working for me completely. I could no longer get a click. There was no switch that went off when I got enough chemistry in my system. So that was the beginning of me letting go of drugs and alcohol too. It was a really big change. And I was terrified. My whole first job, it was 10-week shoot. I was terrified through the whole thing that they were going to fire me. After five weeks, I figured, well, they have so much in the can. Now they can't fire me. They can't afford it. But I was terrified. It was just horrifying to, you know, because if you're not willing to look at yourself, or not able to look at yourself, and then you're exposing that self to others, especially if it's being filmed, that's terror. And, you know, you're stepping into the unknown. That's the only way to act is to step into the unknown. It's really the only way to live, too, because it's all unknown. I don't know what's going to happen in the next moment here. You've done a lot of podcasts, but you've never done this one with me. We've had a lot of conversations, but we've never had this one. <laughs> So it was really a huge lesson in it doesn't matter if you're terrified, as long as you keep showing up and doing your best and speaking the truth and trying to be of service. That's what I was doing. And it worked. Did you have a classic sort of rock bottom moment where you dropped the guitar three times or did you, before you hit that point, you say, you know, I got to clean myself up here? No, I had that moment. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was an odd little moment. I was a recreational crack user and crack and scotch or crack and tequila, depending on my mood. You know, and I had gone out to celebrate this job, actually. And I was celebrating by it was my farewell to being a taxi driver. I was a taxi driver in LA. And someone got in my car and had me go to this crack house down on I can't believe I'm telling you all this stuff down on Washington and Arlington. And, you know, he went in and got this crack and he said, you know what, to hell with my boyfriend, let's go do this. And I said, okay. And then he started thinking about, it. I said, no, that's a bad idea. I need to go. My boyfriend's going to kill me. So I took him home. I said, okay. And then the, the, my very next fair was a woman who had me take her to the same crack house. I was working in Hollywood and I went down to the same crack house to, and she said, you know what, to hell with my boyfriend, let's do this. And so we did. I parked the cab, we, we smoked the crack, and then 
I said, we need some more. We went back to the house and got some more and smoked the crack. And then I took the cab back to the shop and got my own car. We went back and got more crack and then went to the house. And it was six o'clock in the morning. I'm in my bathrobe. The birds are chirping outside. She's on the floor with this shitty brown carpet looking for all the crack we dropped, which is none. But she's picking through all the lint. And I looked in the mirror and this voice said, man, I can't let you go anywhere by yourself, can I? And I don't know who was talking, but that was my moment. It was like, something's off here. Something is bad. And, and that was the, I never thought that I could do anything without having that kind of a crutch, that kind of a relief at the end of it, because I would keep myself clean until I did a job. And then I would give myself permission to fall apart or fall into the loving arms of drugs and alcohol. And that was the beginning of that changing. When we talk about the law of attraction and things like that, it's like if you're bringing your sort of frequency down to that crack level, it's kind of interesting how you attracted two fairs in a row. Right. Both. <laughs> like you, we could make the argument, the spiritual argument that you drew that into your life. And that, and that's one of the reasons why it's hard to get out of that state is because you, you keep attracting circumstances and situations that are perpetuating that state. And that's also, I guess, the power of a practice like meditation, which you start attracting different quality of experiences. Sure. And another way of looking at that is that spirit offers us continually the opportunity to choose life. Mm -hmm. And it keeps giving us more and deeper reasons to choose life over what's happening. And it offers us the opportunity, you know, like you want darkness. Okay. Here's some more darkness but darkness in service of choosing the light. So that's a, a slightly different way of looking at it. But yeah, absolutely. Because what I felt somewhere in there was that there was this little flicker of a flame inside me that was about to get blown out. And mm -hmm. I knew if it went out that I'd be lost. Mm -hmm. So I think some people end up with that light just completely obscured and they're not able to get it back or they find themselves not even able to ignore that it was ever there. So you hear the voice, the voice says like, you can't go anywhere by yourself. What's the next step? I shot on this movie for two weeks and then it was Christmas break. And then I got on a train and it was going to go check into a hotel and dry out. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why I got on a train. It was just very dramatic. The train stopped in Del Mar and I saw a hotel. This is on the day before New Year's Eve. And I checked into this hotel and sweated and shook for three days and then got on the train and came back to LA. I figured, okay, that's good. <laughs> and, You're all sorted. And, <laughs> I'm all sorted. I got this. Uh, except I didn't. I was just like, I, I want, I want something. I, I need something. I, it's because you're raw, man. It's mm -hmm. like your skin is pulled off and the wind is blowing and it's just everything hurts. You know, mm -hmm. and then I, then I found some people that helped me, you know, I just stumbled into some people who were able to help me and able to show me a different way of doing all this. I don't want to turn this into like an AA meeting or anything, but if someone's listening to this and they're having a similar experience where they recognize, Hey, look, this is not sustainable. I'm thinking about going to a hotel for three days and 
getting myself clean, is that even a little bit realistic or is that just complete? Is that still part of the delusion? It's part of the delusion. They have recovery houses today. There are, you know, it's a big mm. business. You can, you know, your insurance probably covers it. And if it doesn't, there are 12 step groups everywhere you look. And there are people whose well being depends upon their uh, ability to and their willingness to help. All it takes is asking for help. So you don't know That's anybody who's I, in a 12 step. What do you do? How do you, you go online or what do you do? I think you can, you go online and just look up Alcoholics Anonymous. I imagine you can get sober by going to Google, just Google, you know, sobriety, Google help, Google alcoholism or drug addiction. And there are people wanting to help. There are government organizations wanting to help people wanting to help their hospitals wanting to help. And if you, you know, that six degrees of separation, everyone's probably two degrees separated from someone who really has the information. So you just put the question into the universe. If that question arises for you, like, God, maybe I should do something about this. Just tell your best friend, I think I should do something about this. Then, you know, and then they're going to tell somebody else and then they're going to say, oh, here, you should talk to this person. Tell your bartender. He's probably sober. <laughs> I know a lot of sober bartenders. You know, they'll say, oh, you want to stop? Here, as they're pouring you a drink, you know, just, ah, here's my number. Give me a call. So in your book, Embracing Bliss, which I want to talk about more later, but you referenced an experience. You said it was in the 80s. You went to see some Thai monk and he was going around the room blessing everyone and telling everyone these beautiful spiritual things. <laughs> Would you mind sharing that story? Because I don't know if it happened around this time, but I love that story. I was going to acting class and I was starting mm -hmm. to come alive. And the truth is that I had so many things that I could name as wrong with me. I needed to find some central answer because I couldn't find an answer to everything, every problem I had. And so the idea of a spiritual solution came to me. And I heard about it was a six week or I think a six week course on meditation. And it was this little Thai monk, a Buddhist monk, and he was teaching us some form of mindfulness. <laughs> and about four weeks in, he went around the room and spoke to everyone and virtually every single person he talked to, he would ask them a certain question. I can't remember what any of these questions were, but they would either burst into tears or start laughing in that big release sort of way. And I thought, oh, this is great. Everyone gets this. And he's coming to me. And so I, there was just like, I guess there were probably 20, 25 of us in the, in the class. And, and there was just me and two other people left. And, and he came to me and he stands in front of me with his, he's in his robe and he's got his hands lit in front of him. He says, he looked at me and he sort of cocked his head and said, why are you here? I said, well, to learn how to meditate, and he sort of smiled and shook his head and said, why are you here? And then after I said to meditate, and he just, then he got really stern and says, why are you here? And you tell me, man, <laughs> I don't know. And then he just dropped his head and shook his head in a disappointed fashion and moved on. And I was the one who didn't get to have a, a release. And seen. You know, and I, and seen. Like, and, you know, it felt like it was humiliation because it was like I, I was not alone in that room. 
And, you know, it's like when you think that everyone had a meeting and decided that you're not worthy of being in the group mm -hmm. and you have that feeling and then you find out they actually did have a meeting. It was like that. Everyone just went, oh, God, I'm glad that's not me and sort of turned away from me. Again, it was the same experience of being in that small hometown. There's just something wrong with me. I don't fit. I don't belong. What are we doing here? How would you respond to him today, knowing all that you know, being a meditation teacher, et cetera, et cetera? If, if that were to happen to you today, same situation. I'm sure you played that scenario out. It feels like the answer would be beyond words, because I, I feel like today we would just smile at each other. My, yeah, I'm here for the same reason you're here. <laughs> yeah. My whole, here's my whole theory of life is that we're here to have the experience of being human and then learn to know ourselves as spirit, even as we're being human. And because of the non-reality of time or the non-linearity of time, we're already having the experience of being fully enlightened, whether we know it or not. You know, because there's the, the beginning of our life and the end of our journey are all here at this same moment, too. And someone like that is just looking at you and seeing the end of your journey and saying, do you know that? Do you know that's the end of your journey? And you're going like, oh, I, I don't know. So I would say, yeah, I know that's the end of my journey, too, today. I'd say, yeah, thank you. And I'm here to find out what the next steps are that you've already taken. That's what I would say to him we're all headed for to the same place and we're all starting from different places. And, you know, that was just one of those experiences where I think we all have an assignment when we come in here and that assignment involves the challenges that we give ourselves or the challenges that the universe gives us. And walking through those challenges is our job. Walk through those challenges, learn the skills that we get from walking through those challenges. And those challenges are always about seeing ourselves more as worthy and as spirit rather than as unworthy and small self small ego at that moment i was just lost in the ugliness of ego and the limitations of ego without having the grounding that meditation gives us the grounding mm -hmm. in spirit where you can have all those limitations but no it's not you well it's kind of like you know an exercise instructor saying why are you here you're over you're out of shape you're overweight clearly you need to be here to exercise to get in shape i mean that's why i'm here were you clean at the time were you sober at no, the time? no no okay that could have been it too he could have looked in your eyes and saw you were high on something Just like why are I, you here i i wasn't high i was in between highs was, <laughs> i knew how to separate my spiritual longing from my getting high. I would just time my high. I probably got high on the way home <laughs> from that class. I made you want to get high. <laughs> I need yeah, to probably. Escape. That did, definitely. You and I teach the same style of meditation, Vedic meditation. We both have the same teacher, Tom Knowles. You had a very different introduction to Tom Knowles than me, and you've actually written about that, which is another story that didn't make the book, but that's fine. Can you share, because I think that would give context to where you're coming from, because you'd already been to India, you'd already studied with people. Can you share 
what your introduction was to Vedic meditation as it related to everything else you've been doing prior to that. My wife and I have a friend, Renee Stahl, who had learned meditation from Tom mm -hmm. Knowles. And she told Adele, my wife, that, you know, you go to this guy, you get a word, you repeat it, and it makes you happy. And so Adele said, I want to go get a word. And I just said, you know, let me know how that works out for you. Because I was at this point, there was, I had decided that literally six weeks before this happened, I had this conversation with myself. I said, you know what, if I was 48, I said, if it hasn't changed by now, it's not going to change. Whatever you are now, you're stuck with this. So deal with it. And I thought, I literally had the thought, I, I guess I got about 70% of my life back. So 70% is going to have to be good enough. And so I quit trying. I just quit trying to change. I quit trying to fix myself is the way it occurred to me at the time. And Adele said, no, come on, we're going to go listen to this guy talk. And <laughs> we went to Will Dalton's place on Laurel Avenue in West Hollywood and this lovely courtyard apartment. And we went in and Will greeted us, and we sat down in this room with 20, 25 other people. And I looked around at the people, and I just thought, these are not my people. And I looked, there was a picture of this orange robe teacher. I didn't like that. I didn't trust orange robes at this point. And, you know, and I just said, before Tom even came out to talk, I just said, I, I can't hang here, and I'll wait for you outside. She said, no, I'll go with you. And so we got up and left. And... <laughs> Will was outside still greeting people. And he went, what are you, wait. And we just walked past him and left. Thanks for your hospitality, sir. And Renee called us and said, so you're going to learn? And, and Adele said, no, Jeff made us leave. And so she said, well, he's coming back next month. And she said, okay, I'll go. And so the next month we went to another talk by this Tom Knowles guy. And we went with a couple of friends of ours, one of whom was a gentleman from Sri Lanka who was a, very staunch Catholic at the time. And he heckled Tom <laughs> in the meeting, in the intro talk. And it was the only time I ever saw Tom do this. I remember Bernie saying, what about faith? And Tom said, well, you, the thing about this practice is you don't need faith. And, and Bernie said, oh, that's too bad. And Tom said, well, I think you've heard quite enough from me. And if you have any more questions, you can ask Will. And he got up and left. <laughs> He went into the back of the, the apartment. And then I wasn't going to learn again. And, and Renee said, why? And I said, because I don't, why should I trust this guy? He wants money. And how do I know it's going to work? And she said, here, call this number. And she just gave me a number. I didn't know who it was. And it was Tom. And I said, you know, Renee gave me this number. And he said, why? And I said, because I, I listened to your talk and I don't want to learn. They said, why don't you want to learn? I said, well, because why should I trust you? And because I didn't think you were supposed to have to pay for spiritual teachings. And he said, well, you're not paying for the teaching. The teaching itself is priceless. You're paying for my time. If I didn't charge for this, I'd have to open an auto parts store in Flagstaff. Not that he would ever open an auto parts <laughs> store. And I said, well, okay, then and he said, what else? I said, well, because I, why should I trust you? He said, you, you can't trust me. You don't know me. But how did you feel when I was speaking? Did it feel right? Did it resonate? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, yeah. He said, so what time do you want to come in tomorrow? And so I was just like, okay, I'll go. You know, and I went and learned. And immediately I knew it was the thing for me. I knew that it was 
what I'd been looking for. It was the first time ever that I had freedom from myself, freedom from the carnival inside. Did Adele have the same experience? She had a good experience. She transcended. She went somewhere else. And, mm -hmm. you know, we were both in at that point. I think I had a more pronounced experience because of where I started from. You know, hell really is a, a self-induced phenomenon or a, an interior phenomenon. And just as in the Veda, we know that heaven is a body-dependent phenomenon. You know, hell too is a body-dependent phenomenon. You have to have the sense of the need to be tortured or have the paradigm that insists you be tortured or that you torture yourself, however you, you want to put that. I've written that I knew pretty much right away when I met Tom within like 10 minutes, I knew that I wanted to be a meditation teacher. At what point did you have that realization? I didn't. My experience was I had spent so long in the darkness that I would meditate, I would go and listen to Tom, and I'd go, like, oh, God, this is all the truth. And I would write it all down. I would take notes of all the truths that I was hearing. And then I would leave the room and forget everything. And I would be mm -hmm. back in despair. Oh, God. So I'd have to go back and listen again. And, you know, I'm from Montana. I'm, if I'm there, I start helping out. So I would start setting up chairs, taking down chairs, helping people, talking to them, you know, telling them my experience. And then eventually I started doing the puja ceremony with Tom and, and, you know, hanging out and having breakfast afterwards. And at a certain point, he said, so I'm going to be, this was 2006. He said, you know, I'm going to be teaching another group of people to become teachers and you need to become a teacher. I said, I don't want to be a teacher. He said, well, you, you know enough now that you're already being a teacher. The only question is, will you be an informed teacher or an uninformed teacher? I said, look, man, I'm an actor. You're the guru. Get me, get me a pilot. And he said, you can do both. Uh, okay. You know, and then I signed up to go to India and, and then be in uh, Flagstaff and have that experience we had becoming teachers. And I don't know if you know this, but about two weeks before we graduated, I, I said to Tom, I said, so when do I start planning what I'm going to do when I get out of here? He says, don't. I said, oh, yeah, okay, that's fine. But when do I start planning what I'm going to do when I get out of here? He said, just let it play itself out. I said, oh, God, okay. And about a week before we were done, I called my sister in Montana and she burst into tears on the phone. I said, and she told me what was going on. I said, oh, you need to learn to meditate. I'm, I'm coming up to teach you. And she said, yeah, right. I said, no, no, I am. And I called Adele, said road trip. And I set up two intro talks, one in Western Montana, where my sister was, and one in Eastern Montana, where I came from. I called a friend and said, you know, tell me about a yoga studio there. And I made an appointment to go give an intro talk. And on the day I gave my first intro talk, I got a call from my manager offering me a Western that was going to start shooting the day after I would finish the second group of people. So it was like the universe saying, yes, you can do both of these things. And that's been my experience since. They rarely interfere with each other, and I'm able to do them both. When did you start the daily email? Vedic thoughts of the day. I think it was I remember 2011. That being... Okay. So you've and, been teaching and, for a few uh, years then at that point. Yeah, we 
graduated in July of 2007. And so I've been teaching for, this is the beginning of the year 2011. Adele is a poet and she had decided to write a poem a day for a year. And after she'd done it for a couple of weeks, I thought, well, I should do something for a year too. And so I had like 25 people on a mailing list and I just sent them a little thought saying, you know, and just, you know, it's that idea of the trim tabs on a ship. You just turn it a little bit and it changes the course of the ocean liner. You know, meditation makes us ready to change, but then what am I going to change to? I need to put in something other than what my general thinking is. And so that's what I started sending out was just something, you know, like think about this instead of what an awful person you are or what an awful people they are or what a terrible childhood I had. Think about this concept. So I started sending that out on a daily basis. Was that your first one, the trim tab? No, I don't know. I don't know what my first one was. I, uh, <laughs> I should look that up, shouldn't I? <laughs> well, you inspired me to do the same thing five years later. I, I remember my first one was about green tea, which is just something I've been thinking about that day and was passionate about it and tried to make some kind of spiritual lesson out of the history of green, green tea. But, That's fantastic. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's called Make Tea, Not War. But anyway, so did you think you were just going to do it for a year? Is that, was that the original yeah. sort of idea? That was the plan. Yeah, I was going to do it for a year. And then and then I got close to a year and I said, okay, so th this has been a great experiment. Thanks for playing. And, and maybe two people wrote and said, no, keep doing it. You know, and I just, oh, okay. And, you know, the truth is, you know, who benefited the most from it is me. <laughs> right. The teacher is the most interested student in the room. No kidding. Yeah. And you're always teaching something you need to know. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, and I let myself just be guided by what I was listening to or reading on a daily basis. And you don't change your experience of life magically. You do it a little bit at a time and you train yourself to see things through a different lens. So that's what I was doing because the one challenge I set for myself was if someone waded through what because I used to be quite worthy, mm -hmm. someone waded through everything I wrote, they would feel better at the end than they had at the beginning. That mm -hmm. was it. They would feel just mm -hmm. this much more uplifted. I've been saying that too with my own work is if you know your purpose, if you know your intention, that's the, your best editor. Because when you have your line it's so clever and you want to put it in there but it doesn't really support that purpose or intention then you kind of have to take it out isn't that freedom though when you learn they call it killing your babies killing your babies you know, yeah like your mm -hmm. favorite line yeah mm -hmm. when you when you find the freedom to edit yourself that was one of the great joys of putting this book together was just you know finding these places where i had gone to great lengths to grammatically correctly express something see even that sentence right there was just way too much to just slash it down and leave a dangling participle and say it more simply it was just oh it was such a relief so talk a little bit about your process that developed over time because i'm sure some people listening to this may be thinking of doing something similar in the daily something or an offering how did your process evolve from the early days to you've been doing this for 11 years now then well you know, it began with 
almost always, not always, but almost always taking inspiration from someone else's work, listening to someone, uh, David Hawkins lecture or, you know, reading something from Deepak Chopra so that I wasn't presenting myself as an expert. It's like, here's what an expert says and here's what I take from it. And I saw myself as being the, you know, I'll go out and forage for the juicy little tidbits and then I'll bring back a tidbit and then talk about or write about how this little piece of, of truth affected me or how it reflects something that is true with me. And then at the end, I began to write the setting of an intention for the day. You know, one of the real guiding principles for me was the work of Sri Aurobindo, who said that all life is yoga. And he was really a, a huge teacher for me before I learned this meditation. And all life is yoga, meaning everything we do is an opportunity to identify as spirit and to find a way to connect with a greater experience of spirit than what we can know in our small self. And so setting an intention, setting a spiritual intention, then allows me on a daily basis to move in the direction of this higher good, move in the direction of this yoga, this union with something greater. And so I would offer that as a, you know, you might want to set an intention like this. I labored over these. There were times when, it, you know, I would, I would write for two hours in a night to get it right and to, you know, have Adele read it and she would edit me and it would piss me off and then I would rewrite it. And, and you know, just finding a way of, you know, finding my voice, finding my way through this and ignoring the fact that someone was going to be reading it and judging it, mm -hmm. just, you know, letting it. And so then looking for that place of humility to know that it's not my business how anyone reacts. It is my business to make sure that it is as free of my personal shortcomings as possible, as free of, of my personality needs as possible. That it's just like with acting. This is as true as I can get at this moment. The evolution of it was I taught myself how to be a better writer. I taught myself how to say more with fewer words. I taught myself how to allow flow to occur more and more within myself. And as it evolved over the years, it was just more and more about, you know, spiritual work is really so very simple, not easy at all, but it's simple when you have a paradigm that you can resonate with, that you can relate to, like the Vedic worldview is, it's so simple. It's just spirit is all that there is consciousness is all that there is. And my head tells me constantly, I'm separate from that. And you put the one up against the other. And, you know, the one that says consciousness is all that there is, and we're meant to enjoy our lives can always win out over the negativity of I'm limited. I don't belong. I don't deserve. And, you know, spiritual work is constantly reminding ourselves of the one truth and letting go of our or perseveration on the other truth. And so that's what I try to write from. And, and along with acting, you know, it's, if I'm not writing from that place of freedom, I can't possibly be speaking in any worthwhile way about freedom. So it was a way of teaching myself freedom.
Can you share the story of Peter and Christy just to give the listener an idea of how these daily thoughts kind of shaped up in a real world way? And then obviously you included that one in the book, but it kind of gives you an, an, an idea of what they are like. So I'd been meditating for maybe two, three, four years at this time. And I had some writing I needed to do. I wasn't doing this uh, daily thought at that time, but I was writing something. And I had my son who was 15 at the time, 14 or 15, he was going to a birthday party in Hancock Park. And so I thought I can drop him off, leave him there for two hours. I can go to this coffee shop. I can get my writing done. This is fantastic. It was a Sunday afternoon and I dropped him off, went to this coffee shop on uh, Larchmont Boulevard, got the last table available, got my cappuccino got my pen and my paper out and before my pen hit the paper i heard my name jeff how are you and i looked up and it was this guy peter whom i'd known for 20 years at that point but just a little bit he was our paths crossed you know we had a lot of friends in common and we'd wave and say hi and chat for a moment but i didn't really know him but he was there with his wife and he seemed really happy to see me and they were getting coffee and and there was no place to sit so i said uh, would you like to join me there's no table available and i i was inside saying please say no please say no i want to do my writing and they said oh god we would love to and so they got their coffee and sat down and i'd already learned enough at that point to just not fight for my right to write mm -hmm. you know just to set that aside and they were telling me that this was their weekend together their son was away at brass camp, 12-year-old boy, and they had spent the week acting as if they were on vacation in Los Angeles. And this was their last afternoon together, and they were having the Larchmont experience. And, and then they started telling me the story of their life together. They'd been together for 20 years. They had lots of adventures together and separately. He was a film director. She worked in the music business. They were, you know, very successful. And just both lovely people and they just kept telling me the story of their of their life and their love affair and every once in a while they would say listen to what we're talking about jeff doesn't want to hear about this let's talk about something else and then they would slide right back into telling me the story of themselves together and eventually you know after about an hour christy got up to use the facilities then i just said to Peter, oh, she's just lovely, and I'm so happy to meet her. And she said, yeah, she is, isn't she? And I said, you know, I'm sitting here watching the two of you fall in love all over again. He said, really, you're seeing that? Because I feel that. And I said, yeah, it's clear. Christy came back to the table, and he told her what I had said. And, and we just had this extraordinary, just a beautiful bonding moment, the three of us. We, we were really having an experience together, and we all knew it. And it was just one of those rare moments where all the guards are down where you know that love is the only thing that's happening and you're willing and able to engage in it. And I was having a group of people I wanted Peter to talk to, a, a, a weekly group gathering, and, and he was going to come and talk on, on Wednesday. So we exchanged information and I sent him an email that night telling him the particulars of the gathering and, and I didn't hear back from him the next day. And so on Tuesday morning, I called and Christy got on the phone and, you know, I called for Peter and, and she got on the phone and said, is this Jeff? I said, yeah. And she said, Jeff from Sunday? I said, yeah. And she said, well, we had that experience together on Sunday and, and on Monday he went out to walk the dog and he died. 
And I said, what? She said, he just, he just dropped dead nine o'clock yesterday morning. And we sat and talked for like 45 minutes, an hour, just about the experience we had had together and about her husband who is now gone. And she asked me to speak at his memorial service. And so that following Saturday, there was a memorial service at Forest Lawn. And I went, I wasn't a public speaker at the time. I wasn't a teacher, but I got up and told the story of their last day together. Mm. And it became so clear that they needed to have that experience together in order for him to move on and in order for her to be able to go on. They needed to underline the truth of what they had together. And what they needed in order for that to happen was a witness, someone mm. to accurately and clearly reflect back to them. This is what I'm seeing so that what you're feeling is real. What you're feeling about this solidifying of this, this underlining of the truth of what you have together, that's real because I can feel it over here. And it allowed me to take the place of an angel. I wasn't being angelic, but an angel in that sense was someone who takes in the light from somebody, amplifies it or reflects it back accurately and clearly so that that light comes back on oneself and enlivens that truth within that self. And I honestly believe that, you know, Peter needed that to give himself permission to leave because we all, I think we all know everything all the time. And the way it works clearly is that nature gave me the idea that I needed to write something. It's sort of like the announcement goes out, clean up on aisle 10, you know, and who's available? I have something. And oh, you go, you need to write something. You go and, and then you're aware enough of where you are and what you're doing to let go of your initial need to take on the need of the time, which was they needed someone to sit there with them and help them with that experience. And my God, it was so powerful for me. And what required on my part was the willingness to sit and listen, the willingness to let go of my own felt need. And what the, the result of that was for all parties was so much more powerful even for me, it, it felt so fantastic to be given that gift of, of being that guy in that moment. It also ties into the business advice Tom gave you, which is establish yourself in being through your practice and then just let things happen as they're happening around you and just kind of go with what feels like the thing you should be doing. Because I think anybody yeah. can listen to that and use that as a takeaway for, their, for your life literally today. And that first part, establishing yourself and make sure you're being consistent with your practices that are that's allowing you to kind of get out of the carnival, as you say, and into your heart. And then the heart will guide you exactly where you need yeah. to be. And along with that, to have the willingness to let go of accomplishing the goal mm -hmm. that gets you moving in a direction. It's the direction that matters. It's not the fulfillment that matters. Because if I had been stuck on fulfilling the desire that arose in me, I would have missed the desire that nature had for me. Mm -hmm. I would have said, God, I'd love for you to join me, but I have all this work to do. Go away. And I would have missed out <laughs> on this extraordinary experience. So you have 108 of these beautiful little gems of these anecdotes, these vignettes, these aphorisms, 
and you've curated them from 11 years of daily writing, which is, what does that come down to? Like how many thousands of- That's, of... that's many, but I recycle. So <laughs> I, I probably have 700, 750 different essays that I've written. Yeah. But Why go look up the one from Mexico City and oh, because 365 felt like way too many and uh, <laughs> <laughs> way too much work. And because, you know, 108 is the power number in Vedic teachings. It's the number of completion. It's the number uh, one stands for the oneness of consciousness. Zero stands for wholeness and eight stands for infinity, you know, and all these different. If you look up 108 online, you can see all these different ratios of the universe that are expressed by that figure of 108 or 1008. That seemed like a chunk that I could actually digest and put out as a book. And it gives me an opportunity to start working on volume two. So there's that. Embracing Bliss is the name of the book, and you are the primary inspiration behind this book, which is Knowing Where to Look, 108 Daily Doses of Inspiration, which is taken from my, my five years of daily writing that I was inspired to do from your oh, thoughts wow. of the day. So you can take responsibility for both your book as well as this book and, <laughs> and Jackie's book. Yeah, Embracing Bliss. I love it. Embrace it's great, man. I'm really honored to call you a colleague and a friend. My last question that I'd like to wrap these conversations up with is, how are you looking at success these days? You've been an accomplished actor. You've written a book now. You've taught many, many, probably thousands of people meditation. How does Jeff Kober see success in the lens of his experience? Well, success is, I'll tell you what it's not, it's no longer, if I get this, I'll be okay. If mm -hmm. I just accomplish that, I'll be okay. What it is for me is the truth that we both know is that success actually means successive change, moving in the direction of ever more fully present, ever more fully able to follow something other than my best thinking my intellect and my plan and design for what I'm supposed to be doing. So for me, success is always finding the willingness or crawling back <laughs> to finding the willingness to be fully alive and to be free and to insist on knowing myself as having something still to do here, something still to accomplish, something still to express. Because if I'm still in a body, that means there's something still viable in this equation and I'm meant to be doing something. That something has to do with uplifting and it has to do with knowing that I belong here and knowing the worthiness of all life, even through myself. And success on a daily basis is finding a way to insist on that and stepping into that, whatever it means on a daily basis. And for me to be able to accomplish that, I have to have different outlets. There's writing, there's teaching, there's acting, there's photography. I do tin type photography. And there's always something to be done in one of those areas. And I always try to do it from a sense of 
adventure rather than a sense of duty and obligation. And that's allowing myself to be pulled forward by the need of spirit or consciousness rather than to be pushed forward by my need to get out of discomfort. I guess that's the way I can say it. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing, but I get to discover it on a daily basis. How do you know when it's time to stop writing these daily emails? I don't know. Now. You'll let me know. <laughs> <laughs> when I figure it out. Like, is this just a forever thing or how does this end? I don't know. What's the exit it's strategy? Weird, on right? This, on this thing I painted myself I, in this corner, I, I painted myself into. Yeah, it's a responsibility, but people are still benefiting from it. How can you just stop if it takes so little effort to do it? You know, I guess the answer is when I get so busy that I can no longer do it, I'll give myself an exit. I like what you said earlier. You said it influences the way you see things in your life. Have, knowing that you're writing this thing every day when you're having a conversation, it's not just a conversation anymore. It could potentially be a Peter and Christie type of experience. So you need to pay attention to everything that's happening and really show up and be present. And that's what my experience has been. It's allowed me to be a lot more present in those in-between, otherwise throwaway moments that most people just kind of dismiss as, oh, that wasn't that important. But actually, there is a lot in there in every moment because you know you're you're, we actually you're, call it, that's so well said. Yeah, absolutely. We actually call it killing time. Mm -hmm. What are you doing? I'm just wasting time. Why would you do that? I've done some study recently. I haven't done it, but I've looked into hallucinogenic drugs used for spiritual advancement. You know, when they were first able to do MRIs in real time with people taking psilocybin and different psychotropic drugs, they expected to see the brain turn on and light up in ways that it hadn't. But what they actually found was that it was shutting down the default mode network, mm -hmm. which is the thing that causes us to have a sameness of experience. And it's, it's survival. We don't need to know what's the same in this situation because it, it hasn't killed us and it won't kill us this time. But something new and different that I need to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. When the default mode network shuts down, it's not that we're seeing things that aren't there. We're seeing what is there. And what is there is it's a bloody adventure to be alive in every moment. There is a fantastic world of life occurring when we allow ourselves to take it in. And I'm not saying, you know, drop acid and go about your business. I'm saying you don't need acid. If you just get present and really allow your senses to take in what's happening, it's mm -hmm. far more interesting and adventurous than anything you can find in your intellect. So that's what you're saying, I think, is that, you know, get here because it's a great place to be. Also, I think the power of the commitment, the daily deadline, that's a great intention when you have time. But if you know you have to send something out every day, it forces you to have to show up, even if you don't want to show up, even if you're too busy to show up or if you're too sick to show up or if you're too whatever to show up, you still yeah. have to show up. You still have to yeah. show up. And it's doable. I, I would never think that that was doable, but also it's, it's much like meditation, isn't it? Because mm. when you show up to the meditation twice a day, you find that the benefit is so great that you're not really willing to give it up. And, you know, if you're really, again, paying attention, 
you can't really see how something like this daily writing benefits you, but you can know that it's been a part of whatever has taken you from where you were to where you are. And, you know, where I am is I kind of dig it. And I know that that writing has been a part of that journey, probably still is. So I'll keep doing it, at least for the moment. You tell me if you figure out how to get out of it. Have you had any sort of resolution around that accident that happened when you were 15? What that meaning is oh, and how that relates absolutely. to what you're doing now? You know, and I first got the hint of this in working with the Jungian analyst years ago. And there was a theory of Jesus and Judas had made a deal with each other that mm -hmm. this thing needed to be accomplished. And Jesus is the one that got to leave early. And Judas is the one who had to be reviled for at least 2000 years for being the, the betrayer of Jesus. And I really have come to see it as an agreement that two souls made before they came into this world that he needed seven years to accomplish what he needed to accomplish. And I needed to torture myself for several years to accomplish what I needed to, to accomplish. And we made an agreement to do that. And the fact is, there was only one kid, you know, I met this boy on a school bus and protected him from some bullies. I never protected kids from bullies. And I never befriended a kid other than this kid. And we knew each other for some time before that accident occurred. And he wasn't in a place where I would have imagined him to be. I, you know, it was like all these things point to an organizing principle beyond what I can comprehend. And it has helped me to develop my theory of life and consciousness that before we come in, it's like we have a talk with our committee and say, so, okay, I want to, I want to learn these lessons this time. And, and they go, you know, that's, that's going to be a really big lesson. That's going to suck for a long time. I said, yeah, I know, but I've, I've just kind of screwed around the last few lives. I really want to take a big chunk of growth this time. And, and they say, okay. And then you find your family and you go, oh, they just made a baby. Okay. I'm going in and you dive in and then you forget, you forget where you came from. You forget why you're here. And you have the task of remembering, mm -hmm. of going through this and finding your way once again back to the freedom of life and the joy of existence and letting go of as much as possible you can again and again and again, the weight that being a human puts on you. And if I hadn't had that big a challenge, I never would have done the kind of spiritual work I've had to do. <laughs> Why would you if you're having a, you know, I taught a, a guy who's the head of a big corporation to meditate. And I said, you know, you, you actually have a bigger challenge than most people because your life works, man. He's like got so much money and potential mates throwing themselves at him and, and the ability to buy anything he wants. And he's healthy and happy. And why should he work so hard to learn that he is spirit life really working out for him it was the opposite for me i had to find a spiritual answer beautiful man i think that's a great place to close i want to thank you so much for uh again coming on and sharing your story so openly and vulnerably and i'm excited for people to get their hands on this book embracing bliss and to just dive in a little bit more on your writings and and really it's it's a beautiful share of, of a life well-lived. 
the guru who's tried every drug in the world <laughs> and uh, which has had a very full experience and a lot of learnings to share. So I appreciate you, man. Thank you, man. Thanks so much for having me. It's always, always a pleasure to see you. And I appreciate you having this conversation. Absolutely. Thank you for tuning in to my interview with Mr. Jeff Kober. You can grab a copy of Jeff's new book, Embracing Bliss, everywhere books are sold. And make sure to follow Jeff on social media at Jeff Kober, that's K-O-B-E-R, at Jeff Kober Meditation. And of course, we'll put links to everything in the show notes, which you can find at lightwatkins.com. And while you're there, you can also search past podcast episodes by subject matter. So for instance, if you want to see episodes about people who've taken leaps of faith or people who've overcome financial struggles or health challenges, you can get a list of all of those episodes about those particular subjects. Also, if you're feeling inspired by these stories and you want to make sure that this podcast continues to stick around and to grow, The best way that you can support that mission is by just taking 10 seconds right now to leave a rating or a review, which you can do really, really quickly by just glancing down at your phone and in the Apple podcast app, you just click the name of the podcast, which is in purple. You scroll down past the previous episodes and after about six or seven episodes, you'll see five blank stars. All you're going to do is tap the star all the way on the right and you've left a rating. And of course, if you want to go the extra mile and write a couple of lines about what you like about the episode or about the podcast in general, that's appreciated as well. So thank you very much for taking the 10 seconds to do that. And otherwise, I will look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week with another story about someone just like me and you who had an idea got an inspiration. They decided to take a leap of faith in the direction of that purpose and everything usually worked out. Until then, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, keep taking those leaps of faith in your life. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you so much and have a great day. You want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.